as introduction, I just want y'all to, uh, I mean, this is a huge, huge topic to wrap our minds around, but I want to start off by just being very broad, very vague, and very general, and that is to talk about the Bible, and the Bible being um, a word that we get from the Greek word, biblia, or biblios, which means just the books. So the word just means a collection of books. But is it not also a book? It's it's a complete integral book. It's 66 books, but it's also a totality of books. So there, it, it makes up one story, one um, revelation. In fact, I would call it an autobiography because more than anything else, it's God's revealed word about himself to us. But isn't it also our story? I mean, isn't there a sense in which it's like the owner's manual for every man? I mean, it gives us everything we need to know about faith and life that pertains to godliness for all men, for all people, for all times. So it's written by our creator, is written by our Redeemer and Recreator, and it's our supreme sole authority for all matters. But considering the scriptures as one book, how would we approach a consideration of any book? Like if we think about a book, what are the elements of a book? And if you look at a book or a story as a timeline, what are the elements that you have? I mean, in the broadest concept. You know, you have an intro or what? A beginning. Huh? Yeah, you um, that's probably a more technical term or even what? A prologue. Okay? And that's all at the beginning, right? What's another obvious element of a book or a story? Yeah. You gotta have an end. Or a more technical word is an epilogue, right? Resolution. Hmm? Resolution. And, and a resolution. It's gotta bring things very good point. It's gotta bring things to a conclusion. Right? So, in broadest terms, and then, what about all this in the middle? Just... Yeah. You also have points of view. Yeah. There, and often there are multiple things. And, uh, multiple points of view. And multiple characters. Right? When I, is it not the belabor this, but isn't this amazingly evident in the scriptures? Certainly, taking the Bible as a whole, as a totality, isn't it amazingly evident that we have a beginning and an end and a body in between? And, you know, we just finished studying Genesis together. And uh, I know this may be like bringing up 
previous torture to some of y'all, but like we started in January of 06 and we finished in June of this past year. And I know you're thinking that's seven and a half years, but now we did have a three year break in there. Um, I had a little uh, vacation for three years from 08 to 2011. It wasn't the best vacation. <laughs> kind of like a vacation some of y'all been on. But, um, but anyway, the, um, in fact, though, I know y'all are laughing, but I think that's pretty fast. It's 50 chapters in Genesis, and we covered it in four and a half years. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's different points of view. <laughs> yeah, but what what is what is more of a blessing than to just finish studying Genesis and then to jump over and study Revelation? I don't know any book of the Bible that would better prepare us to study Revelation than the first book, which is Genesis. <clears throat> um, and although I have to admit, if I study Daniel along the way, that, that would be good too. I mean, you know, Daniel would have certainly been a good uh, addition to the study before going into Revelation. But anyway, just general statement. Why is the end of a book so important? General question. Nothing is resolved if you don't without an end. I mean, like, have you ever bought a book and you start reading the first of it and you get excited about it and then you do what? Flip over to the back? You want to sneak peek and see how it ends? You don't do that? <laughs> that is a man of discipline. <laughs> I have done I have done that. But, um, well, anyway, let's just look at the beginning and the end of the Bible. If you look at the very, very first word in your Bible, the very first word. In fact, the book of Genesis is named Genesis because the first word that appears in the original manuscript is what's transliterated into English, Genesis. And Genesis is a Greek word form of the Hebrew word Bereshith, which, that's the first word in Genesis 1-1, is the Hebrew word, Bereshith. And that's translated in the English, I'm sure almost every translation in the room agrees with this, in the beginning. And that's simply a noun that just means beginnings, or origins, or generations. And how much more appropriate word could you start off the greatest story ever told than what? In the beginning. I mean, that's the way it started. And then if you flip to the very back of your Bible, and the very last word of the greatest story ever told, well, having trouble getting there, you'll see that the very last word in Revelation 22 21, which is the last verse of the canon of Scripture, is what? Amen. Let it be so. That's that's the uh, English interpretation of the Greek word that means truly or firmly 
or as Bruce said, more specifically, let it be so. An even probably more meaningful interpretation for us today would be believe it. Believe it. I mean, so when people said amen, they meant so shall it be, we should believe it. So how much more appropriate is the end of the Bible to be what? Summed up with what one word? Amen. Believe it. Now, expand that a little bit. And I know you're thinking, where's he going? All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we have a little more thought if you look at the first sentence in that we know that in the beginning, who is the subject and what did he do and what was the result? So God's the subject. He created everything. And what was the result? The heavens and the earth and all this in them, which basically is the universe. And then you go to the last book and the last sentence, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Now that's expanded a little more into what? That we know that this God now has another designation, the Lord Jesus, and that his disposition toward his creation is what? Kind. Gracious. Because he's saying grace be to all who would receive it. <clears throat> And so you see how that as we develop the beginning and develop the end, it really helps us put in perspective everything that's in between. And think about the vast treasures that are in between these two bookings. You know, this is the Word of God. And I am so excited. I'm scared to death. But I'm also so excited to study Revelation because... I'm so optimistic that it really helped me have a better view of the Word of God in total. Specifically, I hope it helped me have a better view of the God of the Word. I mean, that's the goal of any scriptural study. is not intellectual knowledge, but heart change, a real spirit impact. Um, if we back up once more, um, we'll see that there's a little more uh, serious approach to the book of Revelation. If you look at the back of Revelation, again, um, verse 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So working from the very end back, we see that there's an urgency to the message. There's an urgency to his final appeal, to his final revelation. And that is, the urgency is because Christ is coming. And he's coming quickly. And you say, well, it's been 2,000 years. He hasn't been very fast. Well, what what did we just study in Second Peter? <laughs> With the Lord, a day is as a 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is as a day. I mean, and whether we know it or not, we're beings of eternity. We're trapped in time, and we can only think in time, but we are basically created for eternity. Right? I mean, once we've been created, we're here forever. Somewhere. In hell or in heaven, we don't disappear. So, <clears throat> there is a huge anticipation in that last verse. But, now, let me point out something just to bring about 
uh, bring to bear a little bit of the weight of this study. And I hope this doesn't intimidate y'all as much as it has me. But but look look at the two verses preceding those last two verses we just looked at. Revelation 22, 18, and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Does that underscore the seriousness of this word? Does that underscore how serious God intends for us to take his holy word? In particular, the last book of the canon, which is Revelation. In other words, here is a unique perspective on all the books of the Bible. No other book has that kind of warning. And what is it? It's a curse. There is a curse on anyone who does not treat this word of God correctly. And if you take away from it, you subtract from it, or you add to it, you're in danger of the curse of God. That's a serious, that's a very serious thing. But, lest we focus on that too much, although we need to take that very seriously, look at the beginning of Revelation. Flip over to Revelation chapter 1. Because here is another unique feature of Revelation over all the 66 books of the Bible. No other book has such a curse, but also no other book has such a blessing. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. And heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, isn't that amazing? The Revelation says about itself that here's a book of the Bible that if you read it, if you hear it, if you heed it, you will be blessed. Now, I tell you, when that fully hit me, I thought, why have I been staying out of Revelation? You know? I mean, because. I, and, and I'll be totally transparent and tell you up front, I'm 58 years old. That's being totally transparent. But I have never studied Revelation. And I've really kind of seen it as forbidden territory. I don't mean I haven't been in it, obviously, but I'd go to the safe places, like Revelation 4 and 5, great paeons of praise in heaven, things like that. I've been afraid to go there because it is such a seriously misunderstood and confusing book at times. And and it still is. I don't want to by any means convey to you that I expect to figure it out. And if you expect to come here and hear that somebody's got it figured out, I'll just go ahead and tell you to begin with, you need to go somewhere else because I will not have it figured out. But I think together... God will disclose it to us. Here's a way to look at it. Would God pronounce such a curse on his people about not treating Revelation correctly? Or would God pronounce such a blessing on his people to hear it, I mean to read it, to hear it, and to heed it? And notice that's a threefold blessing. 
You know, back then, when it was first written, not many people had a copy of the scripture. So there were those who would read the book that others could hear it. And then there, there were those who would hear it because they didn't have it to read. But then most importantly were those who heeded it. Or the ESV, I think, says keep it. Which implies what? Obeying it and applying it. Putting it to work. Um, understanding it such that it changes us in our very being. So, but back to my point, would God pronounce a curse? And would God pronounce a blessing on the words of revelation and yet purposefully make them complicated and confusing? You see, what, I mean, would he do that to us? And yet, is it complicated and is it confusing? Yes. <laughs> so whose fault is that? It's not God's. It's not God's fault. But we're all a product of our environment. We're all a product of what we've heard. And we're all a product in America particularly of what the media has done with the book of Revelation. And they've made it into something to sell tickets and to entertain and to bring big crowds so that they can get big money. And um, anyway, enough of that. Um, I just, I think that we need to go into the book of Revelation knowing that even though it is serious, even though it is complicated, even though it is complex, that it is known by many as the blessing book. Because of that blessing. This is a book of blessing. And this is a book that I'm excited to see what treasures God will bring to us from it. In fact, there are seven blessings scattered through the book of Revelation. Um, it's verse 1, verse, I mean, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 14, verse 13, chapter 16, verse 15, chapter 19, verse 9, chapter 20, verse 6, chapter 22, verse 7, and chapter 22, verse 14. And by the way, too, I, I'm going to try to do this. Um, it wasn't my preference to be recording this, but I will gladly post any notes that y'all want. Um, if people want them, you know, we can post PDFs or whatever, because I'll try to, you know, I realize some things, especially down the road, will get more technical, and if you want copies of notes, I'll post them. But anyway... But this is like standing on the edge of a journey. You know, like the men in Apollo uh, 11 going to the moon. You know, it's a scary, scary proposition. But isn't it an exciting thing? At least that's the way I feel about it. I'm very intimidated. I'm very overwhelmed. I'm very, um, really, afraid that I can do justice to such a wonderful book but I'm also very excited and the more I've studied and prepared the more excited I've become I've never been this excited about studying a book of the Bible I'm very very excited but it can be the hardest thing we've ever done and it can be the best thing we've ever done and that's the way most efforts are the harder the effort the more you get out of it no pain no gain but let me just read you some quotes, um, because today is just an introduction, to give you an idea of why people much more gifted than I have looked at the book of Revelation. Milton Terry said, 
no portion of Holy Scripture has been the subject of so much controversy and of so many varying interpretations. B.B. Warfield, this is no lightweight here, said, Revelation is the most difficult book of the Bible. It has always been the most variously understood, the most arbitrarily interpreted, the most exegetically tortured. Pretty well said. Um, Henry Sweet said, I have been led to venture upon what I know is dangerous ground. Talking about the book of Revelation. John Beckwith said, No other book, whether in sacred or profane literature, in other words, secular, has received in whole or in part so many different interpretations. <coughs> Doubtless, no other book has so perplexed biblical students throughout the Christian centuries down to our own time. G.R. Beasley Murray said, Revelation is probably the most disputed and difficult book in the New Testament. And George Eldon Ladd, who wrote a great commentary that I have called The Triumph of the Lamb, said Revelation is the most difficult of all New Testament books to interpret. Alan Johnson said, for the modern reader, Revelation is the most obscure and controversial book in the Bible. And Marvin Pate said, the Apocalypse is arguably the most controversial book in the Bible. A hermeneutical thicket awaits the interpreter of Revelation. By the way, I mentioned the word apocalypse. That is the first word of Revelation 1.1. I skipped that when we were talking about the first word of Genesis. The first word of Revelation is a noun also. And it is apocalypse. And if you look at Revelation 1.1, it starts off the revelation. Well, you know, when we hear apocalypse, we think of Armageddon. We think of the end of the world battle. We think of terrible, scary, dark things. But apocalypse doesn't mean that. That's what it's come to mean. Apocalypse means simply an uncovering, an unveiling, a revealing. Um, to be specific, it's a, it's a supernatural unveiling of something that was previously hidden. So, you see, don't laugh at my artwork, but this is what I've entitled the study, is the glory of Christ revealed. Because that's what this book, it says so in the first verse. It says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And no book portrays the glory of Christ like Revelation. But back to perspective, I just want to, make a very clear point right off the beginning. If people like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and Sam Storms and John Piper can't agree on the book of Revelation, then what are we to do? If men like John Calvin, do you know John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book in the New Testament and most of the Old Testament except Revelation. He wouldn't even go there. And, well, and he didn't do 2nd and 3rd John. But 2nd, 3rd John Revelation is the only books in the New Testament he didn't do. And if John Calvin, Martin Luther, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and Jonathan Edwards, who was a post-millennialist, if they can't agree on the book of Revelation, then what are we to do? Well, my answer is simple, and I don't mean it to sound haughty, 
But we're to do just what I read. We're to read it, we're to hear it, and we're to heed it. That's what we're to do. We're to read it, we're to hear it, and we're to heed it. And thus we'll be blessed. Now does that mean we're going to figure out what are what are all the ten toes of the beast of Daniel's vision? No. No. That, I, I, I'm not claiming that. But does that mean that we can see the glory of Christ revealed? Amen. We can see that. And that's that I just want to paint the goal line from the beginning. I I am not qualified, and I never will be qualified, to try to even begin to explain the nuances and the details that the book of Revelation will get into. I'm just a student, like all of y'all. But I am hungry to see this. And and the older I get, the more hungry I am for the real hope of glory. Which is the eternal weight of glory to be revealed in Christ when we see him face to face. And that is what we get a bigger picture of in Revelation than any other book of the Bible. There's no other book that compares to Revelation in the how much worship and awe and adoration and praise and exaltation there is of God and Christ as there is in Revelation. I beg you to just read through Revelation. Just read it. And let the Spirit speak. And you'll see all the way through people are falling down worshiping. That's, I mean, people get all caught up in all the visions and <clears throat> bowls and the trumpets and the seals and and those are important. I'm not belittling that. But look at the worship that's in this book. Look at the exaltation of Christ. Um, it's just amazing. It is amazingly powerful. Um, anyway, I keep jumping ahead of myself because I, I want to go to where I want to wrap up. But before I get to that point, let me just remind you that and we'll have some more introductory comments next Sunday where we'll get into some other critical points that I think we have to cover before you just dive in the book. And that is perspective of like, when was it written? And you may think, well, why does that matter? It is important when it was written. And it's controversial when it was written. <laughs> uh, number two, who wrote it? And I know you think, oh, well, that's obvious. It is obvious to me, but... There is some controversy about who wrote it. Um, and perspectives. And I don't mean just perspectives on things like the millennium. Obviously, and I know I said the word. And I, know I, <laughs> I shouldn't have brought that word up. But, um, but that is the most controversial word in the book, is the millennium and the views on it. You know, and we'll talk about the different, because the different views of the millennium will tend to affect the way you view the interpretation of the book. It certainly has all the names of the people I mentioned. Their views are affected by their view of the millennium. But one thing that I think is very important for us to consider is a thing called genre. And I learned a new word, so I'm going to use it. But what, it's just... I know all you music people know all about genre. 
won't like music anymore. Uh, well, they're talented and they're intelligent, and I, I don't like it because I'm not. But um, but that's just a type of literature, and they very a, a genre is a type of literature that has the same methods or styles or approaches, and the Bible is full of different genres. And what are some of those? Law. Like, isn't it obvious in the Bible? We have writings that are law, where God's revealing the law, like obviously in Deuteronomy and uh, Exodus, Ten Commandments. And then we have historical or narrative writings, where it's just a writing that's conveying a narrative or telling a story. Like, much of the Old Testament is that way. Uh, some of the Gospels are narratives. Much of, much of Acts is a narrative. Um, Wisdom. What's wisdom literature? That's Proverbs. Uh, poetry. What's poetry? Psalms. Song of Solomon. Things like that. And there's poetry all in much of the other books too, not just Psalms. And then of course you've got Gospel, which is the, the Evangelium, the Good News, which is throughout the four Gospels and in the letters of the New Testament. There's parables, which obviously Christ taught in parables. And then there's epistolary writing, which is just a fancy word for an epistle, which is what? A letter. And Paul, Peter, and John wrote in letter form to the churches in the New Testament. So there are 21 letters in the New Testament. But then there are two types of genre that are key for us to consider. And one is prophecy. And the other is apocalyptic. These two are prevalent in a lot of places in the Bible. Excuse me. Like Daniel, Second Peter, Revelation, Ezekiel, Zechariah. But where is it most? Uh, I'll be careful way to say this. Where is it the most evident and it's almost always defaulted to that position is in Revelation, right? And so what I'm cautioning us about to begin with is Revelation certainly is apocalyptic. And by the way, what's the difference in apocalyptic and prophetic? Prophetic is where it tells past, present, and future. It's a foretelling. Apocalyptic is a little more specific form of prophecy because as I said earlier, it's revealing of something that's hidden with a warning or with a blessing like in other words it's a revelation of something so that you can be blessed or you can be warned you see what i'm saying where prophecy might not necessarily apply to you like if i say ten thousand years from now the sun's going supernova well you ain't gotta sweat that do you well but but if i said it's going to happen this afternoon then we might want to, um, you know, get ready. <laughs> All right, so it, it warns us of future events, and the full meaning is, is revealed to us for the first time. It's almost a secret, giving us glimpses of what is to come through the uses often of symbols and imagery. So as we go through 
um, the book of Revelation, I think we have to consider context. And one of those contexts is context. I'm sorry, Ann. <laughs> and then I have to apologize to my wife and Ann when I mess up like that. But um, so one important context to consider is the literary context in which we find ourselves when we're going through the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation, there will be epistolary, because there's letters to the seven churches, right? It's basically a letter form in totality. There will be doctrinal or theological or teaching passages. There will be historical narrative passages. And I think this is possible especially in the first part of the book. Um, and there will be poetry, psalms. I mean, the two greatest worship services in the book of the Bible are poetical in form. They're psalms. They're great chorales of the heavenly chorus in Revelation 4 and 5 which I think are the two greatest chapters in the whole book. Um, and of course, they're prophetical and they're apocalyptic. Another context that we have to really pay attention to, you know, and as Bruce always says, any text out of context is what? Yeah. So we have to look at the literary context, and we also have to look at the literal context okay i've already said millennium i'm gonna cuss again i'm gonna say literal and i know some of y'all know what i mean by that joke that um you have to look at the literal context of the passage now i'm saying we have to get to the plain meaning and i think this goes back to understanding how god wants us to be blessed by the book of revelation what is the plain meaning of this what is the normal meaning what is the literal meaning but when i say literal literal can be literal literally or it can be figuratively literal and i know you're thinking well he's an idiot or you know you know that part that part settled but let, let turn to revelation chapter five i'll just show you an example like, if, if I say that my dog has kicked the bucket, is that is that clear to y'all? Or, or do y'all have a view that my dog ran and he took his leg and kicked the bucket? You, you see what I mean? So that, that's, that's the plain meaning. That's figure two. Huh? An idiom. But... Is figurative, but yet that's literal. That's what I mean by literal approach. Literal approach means you take the normal, plain meaning. That doesn't always mean that it's literal, literal. Like Revelation chapter 5, look at verse 6. You see, behind, between the throne and the four living creatures, a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. All right? So, does that literally mean that at the throne room of God, there's a little furry creature that's a lamb who's been killed and resurrected, and he's got seven eyes and he's got seven horns on his head? You see what I mean? So, we know that it's like the dog kicking the bucket. We know 
But, but again, that's taking the plain meaning of the text. You see what I'm getting at? Anyway, much more, much more to come about that, I'm sure. And uh, I'm sure I'll get a lot of uh, class comments about that as we go along. <laughs> Another one, the very important context is historical. If we're to understand the plain meaning of the scripture, we have to do like we have to do for all scripture. And that is try to understand the context in which it was originally given to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3. They didn't have computer programs. They didn't have word studies. They didn't have 2,000 years of commentaries. And yet, I believe they understood it clearly. When the letter was brought to them and it was read to them, they were blessed because it was read, it was heard, and it was heeded. And so, the more we endeavor to go back to their geographical, political, social, cultural, every other perspective you can think of, the more clear I think the book will become to us. Just an example, you already have to read a hundred books. What do you mean? Well, about the, the social, the yeah. cultural, and the. Oh, yeah. You know, the, well, and that's part of the intimidation that I have, is because it is a struggle to get a handle, because we're 2,000 years away. And Alabama, Alabama is different from Southwest Turkey. It's a little bit different. <laughs> All right, but so that's key that we take, keep that, and then, and then the other one. And now there are other contexts. I know some of you, some of you real good students are thinking L I G T A S, lights, literal, illuminative, grammatical, historical, um, thinking all those terms. But there are others. But here's one that's most important. What's the biblical context? You take scripture in context with scripture. Revelation is not going to teach something that stands alone and against all the rest of the Bible. Another example is look at chapter um, um, 3. The church in... Um, oh... Verse 5, Church at Sardis. Alright, here is a letter to the Church at Sardis. And look at, what, look at what's said in verse 3. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father, before his angels. Alright, now somebody could say, uh-huh. God can erase my name from the book of life. Alright. Does that contradict all the rest of the Bible? Yeah. Does it contradict Revelation? Revelation 17, 8, Revelation 19, 8 says our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life when? Before the foundation of the world. So there's no way that verse means that. In fact, it means the opposite. He's, I will not. I will not. Yeah. But people can take that verse out of context. And teach that you can lose your salvation. See? Huh? And so. That's not what it, that's what I'm saying. That we have to go by 
the blessing is in the words. The cursing is in in, in, in the words if you don't take them. I mean, just like it blesses it to see who reads and those who hear the words of the prophet. That's right. But but you see, I'm just doing an example of how we got to be careful. We got to be careful and um, keep things in context. Um, this book is full of signs, it's full of symbols, it's full of numbers. And just the numerology part can be overwhelming. And people make some more gyrations. You have to have an advanced calculus degree to understand some of the numerology studies that people get into. You know, like, well, if you take this number and square it, divide it by two and multiply it times 12, and then multiply that times 1,000, and then compare it to the letters in this number. I mean, it goes on and on and on to absurdity. And, but we do have to pay attention. And there are four main approaches to how we interpret Revelation. I don't know if I have time to even get it. I don't have time to get into that. Um, I'll just tell you the names of them. We can talk about them next time. One is preterist, which means it's already happened. One is a historical view, which means that it's uh, a foretelling of the modern church history from then until now, and mainly Western church history. Um, and then thirdly is uh, idealist, where everything is symbolic and cyclical, where it's repetitive, use of the same symbols over and over. And then fourth is futuristic, where the majority of it, especially after chapter four, is um, predictive of future events and people. But a summary is, it will be a challenge. As Winston Churchill said about the Soviet Union, it's like a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And, uh, but I'm convinced God didn't give it to us to create confusion or cause division or promote speculation about the coming of Christ in end times. The law of proportion says we must study prophecy. In the Bible, there are 31,124 verses in the English Bible. Of that, there's 6,641 in the Old Testament, 1,711 in the New Testament that are predictive or prophetical. You know, it's like regardless of what some TV preachers in Superdomes in Texas may say, hell is important because is important in the Word of God. Well, prophecy is important because 26.8% of the Bible is prophetic, over a fourth. So, um, of 333 prophecies concerning Christ, only 109 were fulfilled in the first advent. And they were all fulfilled exactly and perfectly. God is batting a thousand. He's perfect. So, Two-thirds, 224, are left to be fulfilled. Uh, Jesus mentions his second coming 21 times himself. For every time the Bible mentions the first coming, the second coming is mentioned eight times. Eight to one. That was a shocking statistic to me. We're exhorted to look or be ready for the second coming of Christ 50 times in the Bible. There are three non-negotiables in this study. 
that all Bible-believing Christians must hold to these, period. Number one, we believe in a literal, visible, physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth. You can't be a Bible-believing Christian if you don't believe that he's literally coming. It'll be visible, physical, and soon. Now, how do you define soon? God said soon. I don't know. Number two, we believe in a bodily resurrection of the dead. All people will be bodily resurrected under condemnation or under glory. Number three is final judgment of all people. All people will be resurrected. All people will be judged. So three sure things that are core beliefs to all Christians that are Bible-believing evangelicals. I don't care if they're premillennial, pre-tribulational, post-millennial, all-millennial, whatever they want to call themselves. They all believe those things. And here is the thing. This book is about Jesus Christ. In this book, Jesus Christ is referred to as Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, eight times, the Son of Man, the first and the last, the living one, the being one, literally, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands, the one with the sharp two-edged sword, the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze, he who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David, the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning and the creation of God, the line that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the Lamb, 30 times more than any other book of the Bible, the Lord, a Son who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, faithful and true, the Word of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, Christ the Messiah, seven times, the beginning and the end, the bright and morning star. That's what this book is about. It's the glory of Christ. Heaven is mentioned 54 times. So it's not just about him, but it's about where we're going. And we're going to be with him forever. And so, with great excitement, I look forward to studying this. This is the revelation of Christ which God gave to him. And reading from verse 4, this is what it says about him. Chapter 1, verse 4. From him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's, that's what this book is about. And that's what I want to see. That's what I beg you to pray with me will be happening in here. Is that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And I'll wrap up with this quote. Dennis Johnson, who wrote The Triumph of the Lamb, which is another commentary I have, said, well, he was commenting about other quotes where people talk about how much argument there is. And uh, like Charles Dyer said, God gave prophecy to change our hearts, not just to fill our heads with knowledge. You know, how many people, you know, you can have a prophecy study 
and you can gather a crowd at the city meetings that are believers and unbelievers. And God does use that, by the way, to bring people to the gospel. But God gave prophecy to reveal his glory, to exalt his person, to bring about worship and praise for his people, and to bring about real hope and comfort for us. Because that's where we're going. That's where we're going. And so, hear what he said. We need to see Jesus to meet his blazing eyes of heart-searching holiness, to wake up at the trumpet blast of his voice, to respond to his jealous demand for exclusive and passionate loyalty. Shocked, insensible by the impact of his splendor, we need then to hear his words of compassionate comfort, quelling our fears and quickening our hopes. Every congregation, whether it struggle at its post, whatever it struggle at its post on the battlefield, needs to fix its eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I can't add any more than that, but say amen. And uh, that's what I pray we see is the glory of Christ.